minister, right? And we are glad that Mark's here with us tonight, and so I'm going to turn it over to him. Thanks, Rick. So, y'all wake up, all right? I don't want to have to do that again, so. So, do I have to stand up here? Okay, where are the speakers at? Okay. Man, you know, wow, okay, stand right here. So we've got that. Uh, Doug always, every time I come, he's got some pretty long list of details. And I'm not, that's great. I'm glad that he does that. Uh, but this time he told me, he said, I want you to be sure you've got slides. We want slides. I know you think you're a great speaker and all of that, but we need slides. And so I came with slides. I've got it right here in my pocket, uh, my, my little, uh, what do you call that? That's a flash drive. And Richard said, oh, no, you don't need that. Just put that back in your pocket. So, so it's still doing it. So is there? What? It's okay with me. We can do, okay, well, look, here you are. How are you guys doing? Good to see you guys. Listen, I have been here a few times before, and I always enjoy and appreciate my time at Mac. Uh, I love you guys. It almost feels like, I love the atmosphere that's here on a Wednesday night, uh, the, uh, just the feel of it. I think the Spirit of God is evident as you guys come together, even in our singing. That's not typical Wednesday night singing in this little room. That was really, really good, and I enjoy that, and I really appreciate that. So it's always great to be here with y'all. Uh, and it feels a little bit like home, and, and maybe that's because we are God's people, right? And we come together, and there's that sense of community and that sense of relationship that we have uh, that's special. And, uh, but I don't know, just something about it here that's even more so uh, than, than usual. I may have mentioned this to you before in one of my other times, but uh, even though I've never been a member here, I've been here a couple of times back in the Randy Finter days. Anybody in here remember... <laughs> Yeah, okay. So uh, my parents, actually, my dad had a job change, and he and mother lived in an apartment building over here on, seemed like it was Windcrest or West Chase or Westcrest, or it wasn't Westcrest. I don't know what it was, but anyway. And so here's where they came. We, my wife and I were planting churches up in Pennsylvania at the time, and so we didn't have a lot of opportunity to be with you guys. But then my sister and uh, her husband at that time, uh, Bill and Rachel Babcock, were members here uh, along about that time, so maybe some of you remember them. Uh, so it just, it, it feels like home. All right, so uh, rather than a slide, let me just tell you, unsheath your weapons, soldiers, and let's go to Luke chapter 18. It's where we're going to be looking this evening. That is my assigned uh, topic. And uh, uh, it's a great passage. I, I, I want us to, we're going to look at the context of this passage and kind of back up a little bit and make sure we understand why Luke put this story uh, where he put it. Uh, and let me say a few things about uh, setting another kind of context, setting an emotional context for us. I want to ask you just to think about it. What do you really struggle with in terms of Christianity? What is it about Christianity that uh, gives you pause from time to time? I don't mean to sound sacrilegious about that or impertinent, but, but, but is there something that you, that you think about? Probably, probably there is something that you struggle with. And I'm not talking about the temptations that we all uh, struggle with. We've all got temptations, and, and it doesn't get any better the older that you get. You've still got whatever it is, and you struggle with those things. And uh, 
I'm thankful because of that. I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for an empty tomb, and I'm thankful for a king who has paid that price so that we can come together with joy tonight in spite of what all is going on in our lives. So I'm not talking particularly about the temptations that you struggle with, but what is it about Christianity that you, that you might struggle with? Well, I'm going to tell you what I struggle with, and it's connected to this little story, this little short story that Jesus tells. And to introduce it, I want to tell you about what happened to a fellow that I know pretty well. Larry Crabb is his name. Lawrence Crabb is how he usually signs his books. I've heard him speak a number of times. I read just about everything I get my hands on uh, that he has written. And he says when he was about 10 years old, uh, he was reading a passage of scriptures, Matthew 21 and verse 22. Now, he grew up in a pretty religious home. It was not our fellowship, but a very conservative religious home. And uh, he was reading that passage, and uh, it's the passage where Jesus is speaking, and he says, listen, whatever you ask for uh, in my name, if you believe, you ask for it, and you'll receive. That's a paraphrase, but you're familiar with the passage, aren't you? I know a crowd like this, you're very familiar with that passage. So at 10 years old, when he read that, he thought, man, this is the one who never lies. This is Jesus who is saying this. And so he goes outside. He says, I remember this just like it was yesterday. I go outside, and I stand in the, stand in the driveway. And he said, I, uh, I face the street. And he said, I kind of put my hands together. And he said, I pray. And he said, Lord, I want to fly like Superman. I believe that you can do it. So I'll jump, and you take it from there. So up his hands go, and he makes a mighty leap. And about half a second later and half a foot later, he lands. So he does it again. He has the same experience. About a half a second later, he lands about another six inches. And he does it again, and he does it again. did it four times, and he stopped. And so here's the situation. He said, the one that never lies told me that if I believe, I just ask, and I'll receive. He said, I believed, and I asked, but I didn't receive. Now, the next sentence is what really captures me. Larry kind of leans forward, and he says, from that moment, it began a 50-year journey of confusion about prayer. I don't know if you'd state it as dramatically as that, but prayer confuses me sometimes. I see the promises, and I see what's there in Scripture, and at times it really, it bothers me. I can think about, and I'm not talking about flying like Superman. I heard some chuckles about that, and I understand that. But I've got some friends that, and I'm, as well as me myself, I've asked some pretty serious and significant things of God, things that made a whole lot of sense to me and a whole lot of sense to a lot of other people. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we would, we would get together in informal gatherings and pray and pray and we didn't receive. You know what I'm talking about, right? What do you do, what do, you do with that? How do you, now maybe not everybody struggles with that exactly the way that I do. Um, for example, I grew up in a family that said that prayer, listen, God does not, in very, very spiritual family, I don't think it's a matter of salvation that my folks would have this viewpoint about it, but 
Here's the viewpoint that they had, because my dad and I talked about it years ago, before he passed away, of course. But he said, prayer is a, a therapeutic value. But God doesn't just come down and, and answer stuff. Maybe, probably coincidentally. But the real value of prayer is the, is the therapy and it, the spiritual boost that you get. And, and I wouldn't deny that. I would not disagree with that. I believe there is, that prayer is very therapeutic. But to say that's all that prayer is bothers me. It doesn't fit the biblical testimony. In fact, it's not going to fit what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 18 at all. And I know where it comes from. It's an effort to explain what Scripture says with the experiences of, of life, right? But it doesn't quite fit. Y'all know what? Some of you looking at me kind of funny. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you? Have you? Okay. Now, and when I say it bothers me, I, let me tell you, I, I believe in God, and I, and I trust Him most of the time. Because I've also found God to be very unpredictable. You just can't always know how He's going to answer. I've got some colleagues of mine that were missionaries in the Philippines. We do a bit of work uh, at Sugar Grove uh, in the Philippines. I've been down there. Uh, anyway, these missionaries were there, and you may remember this. Uh, they were over uh, the, on a little uh, Mindanao, island of Mindanao. The Islamic guys came in there and took them captive for a while. Anybody remember that several years ago? They were held captive for about a year. And uh, there were people all over this country, all over the world, praying for these guys. They were captive for a year. Everybody's praying for their release. And Gracie, the wife, tells the story that the day finally came. They made an escape, and they both escaped, but her husband escaped to heaven. Right? He didn't survive. And she said, that bothered me. She says, now, how, did that, how does that work out? How do, you, how, do you, how do you explain that? She said, I've learned one thing in the jungle, a very important thing in the jungle. You just don't always know how God's going to act, how God's going to work. I had it all worked out in my mind the way life ought to be if God is. And she said, it's not that way in the jungle. I got news for Gracie. It's not that way anywhere. Hmm? And so you can have some real faith struggles with that. And uh, so... Uh, to say that prayer is therapeutic, okay, but it didn't quite fit everything, right? There's other explanations that people try to give for prayer. That God always answers prayer, for example. Uh, and here's the answers that God gives to prayer always. It's either no, yes, you guys ever heard this? Maybe, or wait. That's the answer. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm way past that. I'm way past that. What do you, how do you, what do, what do you how do you make this business of prayer come together. Now, when I think about prayer, and again, I'm, we're laying some context here for Luke 18. Y'all, you guys feeling me on this? There's two, there's two struggles that I really have with it. Whether I'm talking about prayer or I'm just talking about my Christian walk, but it comes together in prayer. One of them is this, why doesn't God do what I want him to do in spite of the promises? But number two, why don't I do what he wants me to do? I mean, do you find yourself wondering at times, why don't you do what, you, what he wants you to do? Why don't you do what I want you to do, but why don't I do what he wants me to do? Here, listen, Philip Yancey does not put it in exactly those words, but he says, 
those two great issues of the Christian walk come together in prayer. They get shaped and molded together, and you kind of get formed as you struggle with all of that in the crucible of prayer. Does that make sense? Now, there's two stories. There's two parables, actually, in Luke chapter 18. I've only been asked to talk about one, but we've got to talk about the other one. If you'll notice, in the first 14 or 15 verses, there's two parables about prayer in there. And that first parable about prayer, Jesus gives some advice about that first question. And coincidentally, in that second parable, he gives some advice about the second question. Why doesn't God do what I want him to do? He doesn't really answer that question, but he gives me some advice. Here's his advice. Here's the subject. Hang on. Just hang on. You think it's not working out. You just hang on. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. He says it pretty plainly. I'm telling you this. Luke records it. I'm telling you this. He's speaking to his disciples so that they won't give up, that they'll keep on praying, right? How come he doesn't do what I want him to do? Here's his, as he addresses that, here's what he says. You just hang on. The second issue is what he addresses starting in verse 9. How come I don't do what God wants me to do? And he doesn't really answer that. He didn't go into a long conversation about the sarks. Paul does that a lot in his writings, particularly in the book of Romans. We got a, there's, a, there's our sarks, our flesh. It's the bulkhead of sin. It's the avenue through which temptation gets to us. It's our fallenness, as some people want to say. And everybody in here, we've been around the block enough to know that that's, exa- that's a reality, right? So here it is. It comes, through that, it comes through the sarks. Jesus doesn't really address that except to say this word of advice. Let go. That's the message of the second parable in prayer. Hold on is the first one. Let go is the second one. Let go of your sin, right? Let go of it. Yeah, this is the stuff that's going to cause you problems, but you confess it and you repent and you just, you let go. So, so, so here's where, pray, look at, think about that just for a moment. Prayer comes together, all the questions, the questions that we have, these major issues, God, why don't you do what I want you to do? And how come I don't do what he wants me to do? It comes together in prayer. Jesus says prayer is an answer. Prayer addresses those issues. We all, everybody cool? Everybody okay? Now, how did those two parables about prayer occur in Luke where they occur? I mean, Luke's not just randomly throwing stuff together, right? I mean, he's not doing that. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, as he opens up the book, he says, I'm Theophilus giving you an orderly account. He's got a purpose. There's some things that he's doing here. What, how, did that, how did that, what's the context of these, these two stories about prayer? All right. Well, first of all, there's the big, huge context. The book of Luke is a total, right? And Luke is about, it's a gospel story, right? It's a story of Jesus Christ. Uh, his life and his death, his sacrifice. But Luke tells things from a little different perspective from the other gospel writers. In fact, some people have called Luke the cost-accounting gospel. I mean, he's, he's, for example, Luke chapter 14, where he says, there's three kinds of people that cannot be disciples. What, are you kidding me? Three groups? Here's, if, if you hit this category, you cannot be a disciple. So he, it's called, and why is he doing that? Well, a lot of people speculate. By the way, Luke was written about 50 years after the day of Pentecost. 
And all that fervor and all that enthusiasm that was going on in Jerusalem, people selling their stuff and, and giving it away, and people were thinking that the return of Jesus was right around the corner, right? And so after 50 years, that was beginning to dissipate. You can see Paul's own thought shifting a little bit. When he comes into the pastoral epistles, it's a different kind of writing than what he did in 1 Thessalonians, which was maybe his first book to write, all right? By the time he gets to the pastoral epistles, it's like, well, maybe he's not going to return real quickly. So here's how some organizational things. Here's about elders and deacons, and, 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 and here's how you enroll widows and all of that other sort of stuff. So, 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 so Luke is writing to say, hey, let's get, back, let's get back on the wagon here, right? Then a little more immediate context starts in chapter 9. Everybody with me? Chapter 9 and verse 51, it says that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. It's early, it's early in that book. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 says he makes up his mind, he's heading to Jerusalem. Now, we know what, was, what he was heading toward, right? His eternal destiny. I mean, it was a, 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 a destiny set up by God. It was a cross. And I'm thankful for that cross. I'm thankful for that empty tomb. When you encounter Jesus, when you encounter that empty tomb, your life will never be the same. You guys hear what I'm saying? It'll never be the same. It can't be the same. The empty tomb impacts every part of our lives. When you walk in, Jesus Christ walked out of a door that said, no exit. Are, are you kidding me? You say, who's in there? And the voice just echoes back. No one, no one, no one. It changes everything. It changes every perspective that you have. Your perspective is determined by where you stand, you guys. My testimony to you tonight is, I stand at the mouth of an empty tomb. And I will never, ever be the same, ever. Jesus resolutely set his face. Here's where I'm going. Here's what I'm doing. Takes him 11 chapters to finally get to town. Chapter 19, he finally breezes into town. Triumphal entry. Now, all through this travel, he's talking to people. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to the Jewish aristocracy. He speaks to his disciples. And sometimes it's a little bit difficult to know who he's talking to. And sometimes he talks to both groups kind of at the same time. And that's what happens in the most immediate context prior to chapter 18. All right? Just take a gander at this, you guys. Look at chapter 17, verse 20. Once, once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, uh, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And I don't know if these guys were trying to pin him down or not. Sometimes they do that. It's not really clear. Maybe they were really wanting to know, what do you have to say about that? What do you think about that? Because Jesus is all about kingdom, right? And he says, it's not the You don't measure it by that many army troops. You don't measure it by, there's the castle or there's the whatever. It's not like that at all. This kingdom is inside of us. Where is the kingdom of God? It's wherever, excuse me? Wherever a heart is dominated by the empty tomb, that's where the kingdom is. And he begins to kind of unpack that with those guys. Well, that's what he says to the Pharisees. But now look at verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, 
A time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And he goes into a pretty long dissertation about this kingdom and about God coming and bringing justice. Okay? Now, in Luke, he says some of the things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Right? And, and in Matthew 24, sometimes he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, and sometimes he's talking about, apparently, the second coming. It's kind of hard to know exactly what he means, but either way, he's talking about judgment. He's talking about God coming in justice. He's talking about God coming to make things right. And that's what we long for, right? That's what irritates me. That's what keeps me up at night. It's injustice, right? God, when are you going to do something? And he says, it's coming. It's coming. And then the disciples ask him, well, where, Lord? Look at the very last verse of chapter 17. This is verse 37. And this is what he says right before he tells these two stories about prayer. Verse 37, where, Lord, they replied. He said, well, I'll tell you where. Where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, do do you sometimes just scratch your head with how Jesus... They want to know where is this going to, and he's, well, where the, vulture, where the dead bodies are, the vultures will gather. Probably he's quoting like a, a proverb, like a stitch in time saves nine. You can apply that to all kinds of situations, right? It means you need to prepare, get ready, whatever it is. Well, here's a parable, and he says, look, where the, where the dead bodies are, the vultures, the buzzards are going to be there. He's probably saying, wherever the spiritually dead are, judgment is imminent. That's what I think he means. Justice is coming. May not look like, but justice is coming. Then he tells two parables. And the first one is a parable that says, don't give up. That's verse 1. By the way, look at that second parable. I know I'm not here, so don't tell Doug that we talked about this. But look down at verse 9 just for a second. He, He speaks to a different crowd. He speaks to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. You know who he's talking to? Dieters. Yeah, he is. Because I think you guys are a lot like me. I've, look here, y'all. I've lost about 10 pounds I've lost. Y'all impressed? Uh, I want you to know something right now. I did not even sniff those cookies. And I have a little bit of attitude about all you guys that did. Because if you really had what it took, I mean, you could have turned, you could have said no to that. Right? See, here's the thing about dieters. They think they've achieved something. They think they've accomplished something, right? Now, that's the deal about a works-oriented religion. And religiousness, often, that's what it is. It's a works-oriented kind of thing. And if you think, to whatever degree, that it depends on what you know or what you do, and I'm not saying that we don't have to be faithful. You understand what I'm saying? But if you think that's what it, what it can, you, you develop an attitude of arrogance. He's speaking directly to Pharisees here. But that spirit of Phariseeism and legalism is still alive today. And I want to tell you, there's nobody more arrogant than a dieter, or, unless it's a religious person. Right? And he says to those people, he says, look, and he tells the story about the guy that goes up on the rooftop. He says, Lord, I'm so thankful you didn't make me like one of those people. The Mishnah says that they used to pray even, uh, I'm glad you didn't make me a woman. What in the world? I mean, not even like, I'm not like that sinner over here. And is that the attitude? No, that's not the attitude. What do you do with all this junk? He says, here's the guy that goes up there. The other guy goes up there and says, 
Lord, have, just have mercy. He beats his chest. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Take it, take it, take it. You got junk, and I've got junk. You're so messed up, it would embarrass all of us if you were to stand up and tell your whole story. And I'm not trying to be ugly about the thing, but hey, that's the truth. I am a messed up dude. And if I were to tell you all the things that I can, that have captured me and things that I have done, it would hurt your feelings. It really would. And I'm not trying to be dramatic here at all, but I'm telling you the truth. Thank you, Jesus, for that grace. Thank you, Jesus, for an empty tomb. When God, when, listen, a few days after he was raised from the grave, when he stood up and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He did not need to tell me that twice. If you walk out of an empty tomb, you got some moxie. You got authority. I want to tell you it's a beautiful thing to be able to say that we have... So here he says, hey, religiosity, religiousness doesn't get you anywhere. Judgment's coming, justice is coming, but it's not through your good work that you've got anything to hope in. Let it go. Take your junk and confess it. Give it to him, okay? Now, that's not this parable that we're here to talk about. So let's kick on. Let's get this in gear here. Y'all quit detract, distracting me, okay? So let's go back here. And he tells this first story. Hang on, hang on. Now, remember, context is justice. Judgment's coming. Justice is coming. God's going to make everything right. Aren't, I am so thankful for it. I'm glad that he's going to make everything right. But I do not want justice on the day that he comes. Do you? But you know what? I've already gotten justice. My Jesus took my justice. Every lash laid on him. If that's not the truth, I don't know what we're doing here. If that's not our vision and our hope and our dream, I don't know what, I don't know. Because God is about justice. He's a holy God. God is about justice. It's coming. He says to his disciples, hang on. Now he tells a little story. You all ready? Let's get down to the story. Two people, two characters in the story. In a certain town, I'm in verse 2, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. <laughs> now here's the thing. If you meet somebody like that, don't go into business with him. If your daughter brings a guy home like that, shut the door, lock it, and leave town. He does not care about God, and he does not care about people. How does he make any decision? What's his denominator for decisions? Just himself. That's it. That's it. And he's a judge. There was trouble in River City that day, you guys. Here's the judge that doesn't fear God and doesn't care about people. Pretty graphic language, isn't it? A judge. That's character one. Here's second character, verse three. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice. There's that word. That's the subject. God making things right. Grant me justice against my adversary. You got the picture? And basically it's a contrast between the powerful and the powerless. And the imagery fits us pretty quickly, right? We can step into that. God is the power, and we're the powerless. Right? My, my God's not unjust. We'll, Jesus is going to make that point here in just a second. So here's the powerless coming to the powerful, saying, do your job. Let me plead with you. Give me justice. How many times do I have to ask you? 
How many times do I have to ask you to heal my wife? So, verse 4. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Now, once again, his common denominator for making his decision was, what's good for me? She is wearing me out. Now, Jesus is telling a parable about prayer, right? We're supposed to learn something about us and God and prayer and all of that, right? Does that bother? Does that what? Look at what Jesus says, verse 6. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. What did, he, what did he just say? He just said, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. He says, hear what the judge said. Then he says, verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Your Bible may say elect. That's us. Who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he'll see that they get justice and quickly. There's a time word. What does quickly mean to a God whose day could be a thousand years or a thousand years is a day? What does that mean? I think what he really means is it's certain. His judgment is certain, right? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, what do we take home out of that, you guys? What is, that? What, what is the deal? That we have to wear God down? We have to wear him out. If you're not getting what you pray for, as sincere and righteous as it may be, is, it, is your faith to, is that the problem? Is that? Okay, look, because I need to quit here in just a second. So, so, so look, here's what he said. This is, a, this is called a uh, more than argument. A more than argument. Jesus did that several times. Most famous is probably Matthew chapter 7. His point is, not that we have to wear God out, not that God doesn't care about what we're saying, and not that God's just trying to say, well, do they really mean it or whatever it is. No, no, no. This is a much more than argument. If an unrighteous judge can sometimes do what's right, what about a God that is faithful and loving and merciful? a God of loving kindness, a God of covenant, what do you think he'll do? He's going to make it right, and he's going to do it quickly, (laughs) i.e., he's going to do it certainly. It's going to happen. Now, I think you've got a little yellow piece of paper in here, right? There's a couple more things I wanted to say in there, but let me tell you what let's do. Let's kind of get to these conclusions here. And as you look at that story, and you set it in the context... And we needed to look at that context so we really get a feel for what he's saying to us tonight about, about prayer, right? So, so here's the thing. Uh, you got some blanks in there. You, everybody got a pen? I could have just filled that all out, but that seemed too easy. Unfair, maybe. So here they are. You guys got it? Here's some conclusions about prayer from Luke 18. And uh, maybe these are conclusions according to Mark, not, not Gospel Mark, this Mark, okay? But pray about this. Look through this. Uh, this is, there's, there's something in all of this that helps me in my, in my sense about 
God and me in, in prayer. Number one, God always answers prayer. Isn't that the message here, Luke 18? He always answers prayer. There's a blank out beside. Write the word always in there again. Always. God always answers my prayer. Always. The yes, no, wait, maybe. That, that, that's not the... God will mix it up with you. Number two, God will always act in my best interest. Always. Now, actually, if you want to put a little note or two out beside that, uh, I'm thinking about something that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that I think speaks into this a little bit. That uh, You remember Romans chapter 8, verse 28, what does that say? God works all things out together for good. Yeah. A court, what was that? According to his purpose. Sometimes we quote that first part, God always works all things out together for the good. And I got that, I, I do. But it's according to his purpose. His purpose is a kingdom purpose. It's a kingdom purpose. And sometimes people die in that kingdom purpose. Sometimes other stuff happens in that kingdom purpose. I'm not trying to trivialize major events in life. But I'm going to tell you what, God always... And if we are the elect... His kingdom purpose is our purpose. God will always act in our best interest. It may not always feel that way, may not always look that way, but isn't that what he's saying? God will bring, God will do it, and he'll do it quickly. He's going to do it certainly. God will always act in my best interest always. Number three, God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. We're kind of peeling back some layers of the onion here, all right? How's that feel to you? God will always give you what you ask for if you knew what he knows, what you'd ask for if you knew what he knows. How's that feel? Uh, I think if, I'm gonna, if I would have to take, pick one of these things and say, here's Luke 18, it, it would be number three. God will give you what you ask for if you knew everything that he knows. Anybody ever heard of Timothy Keller? Anybody know who I'm talking about? Ah, it's great. Listen. Uh, he's got a book. He's written a lot of books. He's got a book out called Center Church. Mark, are you in here somewhere? Mark, do you have that book by any chance? That's a great book, isn't it? I was going to get somebody to buy that book for you if you didn't have it. But I want to make sure you didn't have it because it's an expensive book, right? So find somebody else on. Richard, do you have that book? Richard skipped out. Where did he go? Oh, dude, I'm watching. I tell Doug everything, dude. Everything. <laughs> you have Center Church? Okay, okay, great book. Timothy Keller tells about a time in his life when he, there was the, it's before he married, he's married a beautiful lady right now. She can kind of keep Tim where he needs to be. And, uh, but this is before they were together, before they'd actually met, I believe. There was another girl. He was so in love with this girl. I mean, he said, I wanted to marry her. I'm going to marry her. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. God, I want to, this, this is, she's the one. I want to marry her. And you think after a while, you think, well, Tim, just go marry her. I mean, Quit talking about it and go do it. Well, the problem was, not only did she not want to marry him, she really wanted to break up with him. And he just knew that wasn't the right thing. He knew God wanted to, you ever been so convinced of something and you pray about it? You know, maybe it's not that. Maybe you think it's a little bit trivial. Maybe, I don't know. But that's where he was with all of it. And so he even tried to help God out a little bit and he moved closer to where she was. So he started to pray, God, I'm helping you all I can. I'm helping you all I can. I've removed the geographical distance here. You make this work. 
and it didn't work. And he says, now in hindsight, I can look and see that that was the wrong one. And he got to thinking about Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Anybody know that passage? Be anxious over nothing, but in everything. I like to contrast those words. Nothing and everything. Be anxious over nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. That makes a lot of people buy into that name it, claim it kind of mentality about prayer. No, 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 no. But the notion is that he always acts in our best interest. He's going to do what's best for us. You're thankful for it. And he got to thinking about that. And he got to thinking about, really, you know what, really, really, here's the deal. And I captured those words from Tim. Because I believe it is the message of Luke 18. A key piece of that message. God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew what he knew. That's a lot of relief in that to me. Doesn't mean that some of the hard things of life are not really still hard. But let's know where God is in that, in that matter. Y'all good? I got two minutes. Here you go. Number four. No systematic theology can make God's specific actions predictable. Don't say that God ought to do this or God will do that or no systematic theology makes God's Specific actions in prayer spirit. Well, you guys ever read uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Let me see your hands if you've... I don't say the movie. I mean, have you read them? <laughs> They're kids' books. Do yourself a favor. C.S. Lewis wrote them. Buy them for your kids and you read them. And there's, I think there's six stories in there. I'm kind of forgetting now, but I think it's in Prince Caspian. If this is not right, somebody tell me. Uh, but after the battle is over, Aslan, the lion is representative of Jesus Christ in his stories. Are you guys familiar with them? Some? Okay. It's, it represents Jesus in the stories. And after the battle is over, he is, he's leaving. He's leaving. He's off by himself, this big, huge lion, and he's lumbering away. And the, oh my goodness, I can't think of her name. The little girl. Not, there's two girls in the stories. The littlest one. What's her name? Lucy. Lucy. Thank you. Lucy's going to run after him. <laughs> is it Prince Caspian? Whoever said that? Is it Prince Caspian? Yeah. She goes to run after Aslan to get him back. Oh, I mean, she's just because of all. And some, somebody stops her. One of the other characters stops her. Says, no, no, you can't. Remember, he's a wild animal. Now, I think what Mr. Lewis is trying to say to you and me is that he's unpredictable. He rules and he reigns. And if I can somehow capture that, then he's not God anymore. Right? There's, that, there's that mystery there. Okay, next one, number five. And this is sort of an intuitive, sort of a, this is sort of an, an addendum to the story. It's clearly taught, I believe, in other places, but persistence in struggle in prayer is a scalpel in God's toolbox for shaping us. Prayer's that battleground, you guys. It is a battleground. And if your prayers are, and I don't mean to be judgmental here, so let me just speak generally. If your prayers are, if your prayer life is not very deep, you're not really, you're not really sharing your soul, especially with somebody else in prayer, uh, you're missing out. Because persistence and struggle in prayer is a scalpel that God uses to shape us.
Number six, you can disagree with any of these that you want to. You, you've been wrong about other things, I'm sure. <laughs> Number six, prayer is more about conforming us to His will than asking Him to conform to ours. Right? And that's his, that's his point in chapter 8. I mean, there, here he's coming down to it. And I think about Jesus himself in Gethsemane. I'm sure you've thought about that before. When Jesus enters into the garden, there's a restlessness about him. Sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. There's, there's agony in that. He's, his buds are sleeping over here. But when he emerges, when he emerges, some people say the battle was really won and fought and won there in the garden. That may be a little bit of an overstatement because crucifixion was horrific. And uh, when I hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, that's battle. That's battle language. But you see him emerge from that garden. Uh, he's transformed, you guys. Here comes the Roman, look at John 18. Here comes the Roman cohort up the hill. 600 Roman soldiers, maybe. <coughs> Not sure exactly how large that, that Italian cohort might have been. Armed to the teeth. He steps out and says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what he said? I am, I am he. Do you remember what they did? Look at John 18. They fell down to the ground. 600 Roman soldiers, armed, and they fall down to the ground? And then he says, okay, you let these guys go, and he heals Malchus's ear, and Here's a, they didn't take him. He sacrificed himself. He took control of that whole, that whole situation. Prayer's more about conforming it. How many times did you pray? Take, take the cup, take the cup, take the cup. God shapes him through that whole experience. More about asking, about conforming us to his will than us asking him to conform to our wills. Number seven. Never, never, ever, 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 never give up. Hang on. From the lips of our king himself. So, so let's pray about it a little bit. Father, we are grateful to you for your kindness and your goodness. I am in awe of the awesomeness that is you. I'm so grateful, Father, for the evidences that you leave behind so that we can, in all of our brokenness and in all of our sorrow and all of our disruption, know that we come before a God who hears our prayers and a God who cares and loves us, a God who has, by his power, raised his son from the dead. Thank you for that. Thank you for your holiness and the promise that you will make all things right. Fill us, Father, with your patience, your wisdom. Father, fill us with a kind of, uh, a kind of wisdom that, that leans into whatever it is that life deals out to us, confident of the fact that you hear and that you care and that you provide and that you lead. May we be people hungry, hungry for you. Not just on a Wednesday night, but every night and every day. Because we ask it in our Redeemer's name. And amen.